Yes, hello folks, welcome to the weekly Manchester United show, although I haven't recorded in a few weeks. Um, I look like I just escaped from a concentration camp um, and half my hair is put on transfer request. Um, but sure, still alive. Uh, it's been a few weeks since I've recorded due to catching COVID. Um, and we're one more, one more day away from Benrigan Morris. What's the crack name, mate? How are you doing? All, all good. Obviously, um, it's been a tough few weeks for you with COVID, so um, it's turned into the, the, the monthly Man United show, but that's been a good thing, because while we've been away, we've been shopping, so um, it's worked out all right. Well, I've barely played. I mean, uh, I, it was three weeks of um, nothing, obviously. I mean, I don't think that helped United going into the City game. And obviously, um, I'd said this on Twitter, we'll talk about the City game, we'll talk about it, some of the other talking points, of course. Uh, we'll talk about Sancho, some of the criticism he's getting. I'll give you my views on that. The decline of Ronaldo, um, Casemiro, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of Ten Hag's comments. And, of course, we'll talk about the Glazer situation and uh, we'll take some of your questions. Uh, just to, just talk quickly about the, the City game, 6-3. Then Obviously, the, the, the three goals takes the gloss off at the bit and gives some of a distorting view of what actually happened. United were comfortably second best. And I remember I was reading Conte's comments a couple of days later where he said he would never concede six. And to be fair, this has happened way too often when you it, where there's too many sixes. Should be a one-off, right? I mean, we've had to deal with this so many times. We've dealt with this with City before. We've had to deal with this with Spurs, right? You know, we've had to deal with this. You know, you look at the Liverpool games, I know last season there were five. I mean, it's just unacceptable that a football club of this size continues to lose on that level. And I know City, to me, the, the, the better barometer of United is how they respond to a defeat against City rather than a defeat because absolutely anybody can lose against Man City. I think that any time you're conceding three or more goals, you've got a serious issue. Number one, What's the chances of you outscoring the opposition if they score three goals? Very unlikely. Especially with the fact that defensively we have been such a liability. Certain players have been getting it in the neck. Harry Maguire, for example. But collectively as a group, we've been defending atrocious this season. Now, obviously that's that's with the exception of whenever Martinez and and Varane came into the side because there was a few weeks there when we looked great defensively. But a performance like that against City... You're saying that the gloss is taken off of three goals. I don't think it is. Well, I, I know in terms of the wider picture it is because you've scored three goals and mm-hmm. I mean, 6-3 doesn't sound as bad, but conceding six goals is absolutely horrendous. We we mm-hmm. should not be conceding any more than two goals a week. And this is the problem with Manchester United at the moment. And obviously, there's so many people that are going to get on, on the backs of different things and people. I, I've read like tweets to us too about how Ten Hag systems are. There's nothing wrong with an Hag system. It's the players that build up that system. And at the moment, like the, the game the other night there, last night, was an absolute disgrace as well for the first half. Second half, we looked a bit better when we came on, but it just seems like the decision-making just isn't there anymore. By the way, I just want to make a quick comment on that. Um, Apologise to almost anyone on Twitter because I almost never read, read my mentions anymore or my direct messages um, simply because you can put out the most benign football opinion and it results in the most unbelievable 
responses. I mean, we now have a situation where so many fans are infantilizing their favorite player or their favorite manager to the point where any type of legitimate criticism at all triggers them to a point where they're going to attack you vociferously and personally on a level that's hard to believe. I mean, I'll give you an example. I defended Jude and Sancho yesterday. Read the comments. Right? I mean, I'm being accused of being a xenophobic Englishman. Right? I mean, read some of the stuff that comes back. I put out a, a, a relatively mild comment about Ronaldo being on the decline and it resulted in people losing their shit. Right? You criticise Dean Henderson and you're going to have people losing their shit. You could say hello and it's going to result in a bunch of people going, fuck you. And that's why I don't read my mentions anymore because it's when you have a decent follower, can as people will talk about, doesn't defend my life, but the problem is it gets you a lot of different responses. And if you subject yourself to 150, 200 negative comments, you're human beings, bad for your mental health, you just can't do that. So the vast majority of times I'll tweet something and I have to mute the conversation immediately because it just is a deluge of fuck you, Bellend, fuck you, you wanker, you don't know what you're talking about, you're a fucking idiot, fuck, it's just, that's just all it is. And I am really hoping that most of these people aren't grown adults that are so triggered by a contrary football opinion to the one that they hold that they don't have the emotional maturity to turn around to someone and go, fair enough, but I think you're wrong. Instead, it results in them behaving like a capricious 12-year-old that just got told that um, Santa Claus isn't real. I mean, it's honestly unbelievable that it's just killed any type of... I use Twitter less and less now, primarily for this reason, because it's really not an enjoyable platform for me anymore. I appreciate my followers, I appreciate all the interaction, I appreciate everything that people do. But I find if I spend, I spend more time reading Twitter than reading my mansions, because it's just filled with so much um, darkness that it's just, just not good for a human being to sit there and read that over and over and over again. I mean, some of it you just have to laugh at. <clears throat> Anyway, do I, I if people have commented on my Twitter or regarding some of my tweets, most of it I won't have seen. Same with direct messages. I apologize, folks. My direct messages are literally filled with hundreds upon hundreds of spam DMs from people asking me about is this player coming or that, what about that? What about and and then if I don't respond in twenty minutes, I get an abusive message, you know, and it's like it's almost unusable. Um, so anyway, um, I apologize to a lot of the good people on there that I don't get to interact with anymore, but that's primarily why. Um, <clears throat> so with getting back to United not shouldn't concede six, you're right, they shouldn't concede six. Here's the thing about United. They can go to a place like City or other football clubs and have tactics that are designed to keep the score down. But is that a betrayal? Of what Manchester United should be. Secondly, if you remember when Pep Guardiola was in his first season, it wasn't great. And he was asked after about two months, was he going to change his tactics? Was he going to change his identity and change how City play him? Adapt to more practical tactics. And his answer was absolutely not. Um, we will stick with this till we get it right. Ten Hogs talked about the consistency. Consistency is the hardest thing to get in life at all. So to me, I think uh, I sort of see how this can happen 
because he's trying to play an expansive way that will leave you vulnerable and will leave you to, to, to getting to conceding um, and doesn't want to compromise those principles. Um, but I agree with you at the same time. You, you, you just can't be conceding sixes and Matthias Nederbanagin. I think the best thing that I've seen about Ten Hag is his man, how, how his leadership has shone through in terms of the Ronaldo situation. I, for one, was completely wrong about Ronaldo. Me and you had this conversation on this podcast, and I've probably looked like a fool now because I was back in Ronaldo to the hills. And to be honest, I was so wrong in, in my evaluation of Ronaldo at that point to get to the point of where he is now and, and how he is. And again, I do think it comes back to what I said about his mental state with losing the child. And I know I said that to you at the time, and we weren't too sure about mm-hmm. it, but it's came out since that that is having a big effect on him. And I do think that obviously he's a, he's a human being like everyone course, else. He's going to have issues like this, and and he's he's not he's not a, a fantasization in terms of he's not different to us. He, he's the same as us. He's just unbelievable at football. And at the end of the day, he's having personal problems which affects his performance on the pitch. Now, at the end of the day, he hasn't he hasn't been good enough to be starting for Manchester United. And I like that Ten Hag has not been playing him. I also like that Ten Hag has been playing consistently Scott McTominay and not just throwing Casemiro into it mm-hmm. because of the name Casemiro has and who Casemiro is and how much we sign him for. And I think that has to be applauded because previous managers would have just thrown Casemiro in at the deep end. And Ten Hag not doing that has sent, set a precedent throughout the squad. And it's something that I want to see going forward. I agree that Cristiano Ronaldo is a human being and that... Um... I think for Ronaldo, you know, he hasn't scored in eight of Portugal's last nine. I think part of that is the fact he doesn't play as much club level as what he should. Um, but we watch lots of different sports, and the one thing that's consistent amongst all sports, father time is undefeated, catches up with every athlete. And Cristiano Ronaldo inevitably will have a season where he declines, where he's not at the superhuman levels he was at before. Now he's probably still at a level that was put him in. A, it makes it he's still more than good enough to play top level football. But whether he's more than good enough to play for a team that has to win every week, um, I don't think that's the case anymore. And uh, I don't like admitting that. But I look at Cristiano Ronaldo's game, and for the first time, I see something in Ronaldo that I haven't seen in him in a long time, and I see it almost a mental fragility to Ronaldo and you can see his frustration he desperately wants to score he's been that way all season for, with every game that he's played he's had that he, and he's always had that hunger and that hunger's driven him but unfortunately anyone who gets old will know how this feels your brain still works exactly the same but your body just doesn't do this the, the, the same things anymore with the same speed the same reaction the same everything just this fraction right of decline will result in what you're seeing. There's Messi will have a bad season too, on his last season. Maradona had this, you know, Boca, Sevilla, and all this. Every great player has this. This this is 100% natural, of course. Very rarely do players retire after a 40 goal season. It's usually after a couple of ser- seasons of complete decline. So, we this is entirely expected. I mean, it's a miracle that he did what he did last season. I, lots of people thought the Ronaldo that we saw, we see today, was the Ronaldo we were going to get last season. But it was a miracle he did what he did. So, I think it suits all parties for Ronaldo to leave in January because I think 
when Ronaldo continues to play at this level, it's he still score goals. He still, you know, he's, he, I'm not saying that he's completely incapable of playing the top level football. What I'm complete, what I'm saying is, he no longer has the ability to dominate games of football to be a serious threat where a top team couldn't mark him out of a game. His movement just isn't the same. So you're out, you're starting him on reputation, not form. And I think what Ten Hag has done is making sure that players start on form, not reputation. But if Ronaldo does leave in January, where does that leave us in terms of do we need another striker? Who is the other striker that we're going to sign? And where do we go from there? Because you take Ronaldo out of this team and then that's another option going forward that you haven't got. At the moment, really, our only out-and-out strikers are Riceford and Martial and both are kind of more so not an out-and-out striker. Now, this year, obviously, Martial has came on over the last couple of weeks, scored more goals. Riceford's been looking good. But, again, who who is the out-and-out striker? Who is the number nine in the team? And I know you'll say maybe we're not going to play with a nine, but do we still need that? Because we had it before with Giovanni. Again, he was at the end of his, of his time as well, but we need someone else in there. Who's it going to be? Here's the thing, Tom. Speculating about January is almost impossible right now. If you take a look at how United went about their business in the window, a lot of their targets weren't even settled on until the last two weeks of the window. Right? So you see how fluid that situation is and how prone to change. I mean, we don't even know who the owners of this football club are going to be in January. So it's going to depend on where United are at in the league. It's going to depend on who owns the football club. Because right now United don't have the money to go out and send a top striker while Ronaldo leaves or not. And we'll get into this in a minute. Bit, bit later in the show so I think for United uh, they won't send anyone in January if the Glazers still own the football club regardless of the situation right? I think that'll be pushed off until the summer but even if Ronaldo stares what's he giving you at the minute you know I mean I still feel that uh, rightly or wrongly I still feel like United haven't given up on integrating Mason Greenwood back if the charges get dropped. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that should happen. I'm just saying that if those charges get dropped, do you need to integrate Mason Greenwood back in the team? Um, the fact that he's still registered at the football club, to me, uh, is, is, is telling. And obviously this thing needs to come to a conclusion one way or another. I don't know the process of legitimate due diligence and how long that should take. It should take as long as it should take, 100%. Um, but you can't be in this situation forever. I mean, at some point, charge him or don't charge him. You know, there, I think there's a reasonable amount of time that it takes to collect evidence. This has been going on since, what, January? Um, so at some point, that will come to a conclusion, I feel, over the next few months. Um, I personally, you know, I've been very critical of Thomas Partey in Arsenal, for example, for not leaving him out of the team. Personally, I feel Mason Greenwood shouldn't be anywhere near Manchester United until there's a conclusion to this whole case. Um, if it turns out, well, I, I, I don't want to speculate because I don't know. Um, but uh, I merely say this and not pass moral judgment on this any one way or another. It's a very difficult topic to talk about. And obviously my support is 100% behind the young lady in this situation, um, and I hope she gets justice. Um, but I feel that um, that is something that United haven't given up on. That maybe there's if if it turns out that there's exculpatory evidence, if there's something that that where it turns out that um, Mason Greenwood doesn't get charged or whatever, 
Uh, it's not an admission of innocence. It's, it's not, it doesn't exculpate him anyway. But I just feel that perhaps you know they haven't given up on that. But if if they haven't given up on it, which we don't we we don't know at the moment what the situation is, all right. But if they haven't given up on it, and then eventually it comes out and he's not back in the squad, and we let Ronaldo go in January, are we not in the worse off position? Come the end of January, when you've got no Ronaldo and you've got no out and out striker. No, we, we, without Ronaldo and no out and out striker, there's definitely a worse situation. United need, and I mean, with or without, United are stronger with Ronaldo than without, but I just don't know how much he really gives him at the minute. Do you think he's having a detrimental effect on the squad because of his his personality, who he is, and obviously he's demanding that he plays from over no. here? I think that um, because he's not starting games, uh, I think because even when he does play, he's not playing at a level where you can... How do I equate this? Kind of like Conor McGregor having an ego when he's losing fights. No one pays attention anymore, right? It doesn't really mean anything. That carries weight, and you carry influence when you're playing at the, when you're at the top of your game because... The juice is worth the squeeze, if you know what I mean. But whenever you're not winning, or whenever you're not starting games and you're on the bench, having an ego is pointless because no one cares. You know, you're not really affecting change. What I will say is that it shattered the myth that Ronaldo is the problem for other players not playing well, right? I mean, I've heard this from someone, but Harry Maguire, but Jadon Sancho, everyone not being able to play well because of Cristiano Ronaldo. Now we know that's nonsense, right? And, and honestly, if that was the case, I would have serious reservations about the character and personality of players that are so intimidated by one other human being that they can't perform. And the whole definition of the word professional is being able to do your job to highest level despite all the other variables. So to me, I would have serious concerns about the United Dressing Room that didn't have the character to overcome uh, a declining footballer. I think undoubtedly we can say Ronaldo is one of the best footballers of our, my generation anyways. But can he turn it on at any certain point this season? Is it is it a possibility that maybe over yeah. the coming weeks or months he does turn it on? Definitely. I mean, look, I think a, a confident Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, I think what happened last night against Nicosia was... It was painful to watch because you're watching the great that a couple of years ago would have tore the arsehole at Nicosia, right? And so it was painful to watch. I think if he's confident, if he's on a run of form, and I think that he has a massive goal to get fit for the World Cup, being for, form for the World Cup, and also to get a move in January. So you could definitely see a revival of Cristiano Ronaldo over a period of time. But, you know, I still don't think, no matter what happens in the next three, four months, he gets a move to a massive club in January. But who knows? You know, clubs could need a stopgap. Um I want to move the conversation on to Jadon Sancho because one of the things that social media has done to us is that it's lowered our attention span and everything is hyperbole. There's no, there's no middle of the road. You know, it's either you either have United either go from being a team capable of winning the league or capable of being relegated, and that continues in two weeks, right? Um, and I'm not. I'm as guilty as anyone else, right? <clears throat> and one of the things that I tried to do 
against City you know, is to not tweet during the game because when I look back on a lot of my tweets during the game that are purely emotional I cringe sometimes later I wanted to have a more measured view Jadon Sancho up until two week, up until the break was one of United's best players this season I noticed that all his goals came from central positions and I'm looking at Jadon Sancho's skill set and I'm going he's not lightning quick as a winger which you need he has a tendency to drift inside he's very technical he's very creative would he be a better false nine than a winger? I also didn't think Ten Hag's comments about not getting width outweighed helped him either because I think he has a tendency to drift inside because he's not a natural winger. I think uh, it's unfair on the criticism that's been levelled at him because I think he's an exceptional young player, but I do feel you know, have a bit of a problem finding out what his best position is. I think I think the thing with Jaden Sancho is is that like any player in that position, there's always going to be peaks and troughs, especially whenever we're in a situation that we're in at the moment where we're not playing expansive football every week, where we're not winning games easily every week. It's very easy to jump on someone's back. Mm-hmm. And I think Sancho gets that criticism leveled at him week in, week out, because he's an easy target, just like Maguire was an easy target for some people. And as you've said on social media, it gives anyone an opinion. Me and you are both Joe Average as well, so our opinions aren't aren't any way <laughs> aren't any way weighted compared to someone else's opinions. But my my point on that is is that Sancho gets unfair criticism at times because he tries things that maybe other players aren't trying on the pitch. And I look at Sancho and like you've just said there, he's not really an out and out winger. So whenever you're looking at him, he's never gonna do anything that's gonna go, Wow, Sancho's just burnt past two two defenders or Sancho he doesn't really do that he's, he's more as you said he more fits us as a false nine type player mm. so why is he not being integrated into the squad in that manner why is he still continuing to play out wide if you can see it surely Ten Hag can see it I don't, I, I don't think Ten Hag has given up on trying to make a winger out of him I also feel that um, he he's not the easiest player to fit in if he doesn't play out wide you know who do you drop for him Fernandez or, or Eriksson I would also question Mark Sancho's ability to defend um, when losing the ball. You know, the goal against Nicosia was was unbelievable. I mean, why is Terrell Malassia the last player back 20 yards inside the opposition half? That, that's just unforgivable. And and Sancho shouldn't be playing him into trouble either. Um, and look, there was positives from that Nicosia game, the fact that he had scored three goals away from home again, which I think is encouraging. Um, but obviously the negatives or an illustration of just how far you know, have to come. I was listening to some of Ten Hag's comments um, today about uh, it's okay doing it against Liverpool and doing it against Arsenal, but you have to do that every week. One of the biggest things that separates Premier League footballers from Championship footballers and League One footballers is consistency. Right? Championship footballers, have most of them have the same ability, close to that, of average Premier League players. This is shown in FA Cup games when we have Giant Killing. Anyone can raise their game on a day and get a result. Anybody, right? Um, but consistency is the hardest thing to get in life, whether it's in football, whether it's in work, whether it's in relationships, it doesn't matter. It's very, very, very hard to do because it requires you to have everything um, calibrated in your life. Your diet, your sleep, your exercise, your relationships, your professionalism, your attitude, your mental health, your physical health requires so many things. It requires you to have a, 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 an understanding with your boss where you know exactly what they want, where your skill sets 
uh, tailored towards what they want. There are so many variables that goes into why someone can't be consistent. It's really, really hard to narrow those and get them right. That has always been the problem for United is never winning the one-off games, never winning the PSG game away from home. It's always been the Norwich game. It's always been the stupid games. You know, I've, I've brought it up in this podcast before. United beat City, then lost to Sheffield United. Um, I also feel that when Ten Hag said about United lacking belief, there's a consistent thread. If you remember, Solskjaer was dropped in the... I think it was after the Everton game when he was said... We was told Maguire said in an interview that United lacked belief. And he said, did he say that? That would concern me. Why are you not mentally prepared? Why do you not feel like you can go out and get a result against Man City? I know they're exceptional, but Newcastle took points off them. Right? I think, was it Southampton took points off them too? Mm-hmm. So they're not indestructible. So to me, I would, I, I would concern me. Why, why are you not mentally prepared for to go? And, and are you that afraid? Like you used to hear that old saying, United won games in the tunnel. To surrender in the tunnel to, against Manchester City, because United played that game petrified from the first whistle, is unacceptable to me. I agree. And, and it's funny, whenever you say the word consistency, the first thing comes to my mind to bring up there is Christian Eriksen, because... This season, he has been the only consistent figure in our team that's played. Give you an eight out of ten week in, week out. You have to say Lissandro too. Well, yeah, to be fair, Lissandro as well, but but more so Christian Eriksen because whenever this season started and we made signings, I guarantee you probably less than 10% of people thought Christian Eriksen was going to be how he is now. He was going to be a star player for us. Christian Eriksen couldn't even afford, we couldn't afford last night the rest Christian Eriksen because he's been that good. That that that's where the reality of where we're at at the moment. Christian Eriksen is undroppable for Manchester United. But I don't think that's necessarily a yeah, I think that I, I expect the big things of Eriksen. Maybe not the consistency I, with which we're seeing, but I definitely expect a big things from him. I didn't. I did. Um but I would agree that maybe um he's been better than what I would have imagined. I don't think it's either any disgrace that he... Because I honestly think Christian Eriksen, with maybe the exception of Man City, improves pretty much any team he walks into. Um, I don't think it's a disgrace for teams to be dependent, not overly dependent, but to be dependent on a a player of that calibre. I don't know if they showed it back there, but they showed you a clip of Arsene Wenger talking before the City game. And he was saying how United would lose the game. And he was talking about the individual duels. And he goes, if you lose those, you will lose the game. But he also talked about the problem with United with just having Bruno Fernandes. Was once you shut Bruno Fernandes down, United became a one-dimensional team because they were they had nobody else that were capable of cutting you open. And I was watching them against Nicosia where it was like, okay, here's United dominating possession. Do they have the technical ability to cut you open? Because they didn't before. And really it was down to bad finishing. And United getting overly confident, not being concerned about what's coming back at them, overcommitting, conceding the goal, coming back and winning the game. Um, but there were still concerns for me that United still can't cut a team open when they dominate possession. You know, they're still trying to get out of that counter-attacking mode where we're going to wait to make mistake, pounce on you because we have the pace up front to hurt you. There's still, you can see that there's still a long way from getting that identity and trusting themselves where if you give us the ball, we will beat you, we will win the game. Uh, but is I that still not don't be a think it's so yet. 
Yeah, of course, it takes time. I, 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 that's that's not something you should expect in the first few months of anyone's tenure. That, I mean, in the Premier League, Manchester Premier League have a problem with Manchester City, right? Um, and this is not jealousy, Colm. This is the fact that Manchester City are so flagrantly, laughably disrespecting the rules of football that they signed up to, by the way, that we're talking about supposedly the most competitive league in the world, and they are walking it. They are absolutely walking it. I mean, they have a guy up front that, in my opinion, is the first machine to pass a Turing test. I mean, this guy is a freak of nature. And, and, and you're going, you know, 900,000 a week, where else could he have gone for that money? Is this healthy well, for football? Well, well like, like at the end of the day, this is Man United podcast. Let's not get hung up. No, 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 no. But, it, but, but this affects this. This affects Manchester United, you know, because we're judging United against a team that is being constructed by cheating. I mean, it is honestly the equivalent of getting into Football Manager, um, doing an edit, and giving yourself five hundred million to spend, and just collecting the world's top players, then buying other football clubs and, sh and using them as feeder clubs. That, that's not healthy. And, and, we'll, and look, United would be much better equipped to compete with them if they didn't have kleptocratic owners, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But it's, this isn't about United, it's about the rest of the league. You know, you take a look so at how... So how does the league combat that? Well, I think, first of all, you have to have legitimate regulation and oversight by making sure you don't have things like illegal betting companies, you know, in Dubai that aren't real companies sponsoring your football club and, and then having the courage to see through punitive measures rather than being spineless and saying, oh, well, you know what, uh, here, um, we're, here, here's a slap on the wrist. You know, Der Spiegel uh, showed the, the levels of corruption and, quite frankly, the levels of humiliation for UEFA that were completely impotent when it came to imposing their own rules, why would anyone comply? Why would Inter Milan comply? Did they had to? All these foot clubs that got fined for financial for financial F FFP violations. I mean, fining Manchester City is a waste of time. You know, it's a cost of doing business tax. So you know, you can argue whether these rules should exist or not. That's a different argument. But if you sign up to them, you should adhere to them because everyone else has to. And the fact that what, if you've got football clubs that think that rules are advisory, then FFP's just the start of where they're going to ride roughshod over the rest of it. That They cared so much about the rules, they tried to break away, do their own breakaway Super League. So if there's nothing, if, if, if there's no control parameters, then what's the point of UEFA? If they are breaking rules, so obviously, like you've said, and if it's there in black and white, then surely there comes a point where they're going to have to pay for it. And I don't mean in terms of financial. It's obviously going to affect them on the pitch as well because there is going to be bans implemented and there's going to be different situations that will happen to Manchester City then. If it's if it's as obvious as what you're saying. Cause well, it is again, because it's already been I'm proven. Well read on that. Well, be, so, so been why, proven. why are they able to do it? Why are they able be, to do be, it? Because essentially... The legally, there, there, there's whether it's truly legally enforceable is another question. You know, for example, there's certain things that exist in football that really aren't legally enforceable. For example, things like uh, foreigner rule, right? 
it's not compatible with EU law. If that was challenged in a court of law, it would get thrown out. Transfer window. You can tell a human being that they can't change employers for four months. Not legal. If it was challenged, right? If there wasn't collective agreement and this was challenged in the court of law, which struck down. So can you really reasonably enforce, impose legal ramifications on football clubs to comply with something that's really a sporting measure, not a legal measure? Probably not. It requires the football clubs to act ethically. You could challenge it in court so that you can escape any any consequences, which what City threatened to do. We'll take you to court, we'll win. And they did, and they went to the Court of Arbitration of Sport, and they won. Because they're essentially unenforceable. Because they're not compliant with EU law. So this, there's certain, like, I mean, there's certain things that happen within sports that have their own adjudication, that aren't compliant with the law, right? There's a civil law and there's a legal law. But that requires participants to sign up for these to have some type of competitive balance, right? But if you've got bad actors that say, we'll sign up for but we're not really going to comply, which is inevitable, when you get people with a lot of money, you know, PSG didn't either. You know, they got um, cost of doing business fines. How much do they care? Right? I mean, it, but where it, does the box stop then? Are you just allowed to continue until. Well, it's, there is no the box, doesn't stop. This is the problem is that um, UEFA, the governing body, is completely impotent. I mean, come, we're about to have a World Cup in Qatar, right? What a farce this is. We've got. Companies pretending to be woke. Look, when Hummel comes out and says, uh, we're going to black out our shirt in, in, in protest for, this, for, for human rights in Qatar, that's an, that's a, that, that, that is an advertising strategy. If you really want to impose suffering, don't let Denmark wear your shirt. Right? Turn, boycott the tournament altogether. Going there with little LGBTQ armbands and all, this is all performative nonsense. This isn't really about legitimate sacrifice. So when it comes to football clubs doing the right thing, or football in general having a moral compass, it never has had. It's a den of thieves. I mean, look at the owners. Look at the Manchester City owners. Look at the PSG owners. Look at the Newcastle owners. I mean, these people shouldn't be allowed to own football clubs. Look at this previous city owner, Thaksin Shinawatra. How is it that a guy who was charged for human rights violations, for, for, for uh, embezzlement, for, for mass, mass murder, was allowed to own a football club and pass the fit and proper test? And this is insane. So football will never do the right thing. It will always do the thing that makes the most money, hence why we have a World Cup in Qatar. So the, the buck doesn't stop anywhere. Is it that we need to be worried about that going forward with Manchester United's new perspective owners, that there is a possibility that eight, nine out of ten of these new owners that come in are up to their neck in, in all sorts? Because it seems to be across the board. You, you've just named three three big clubs there with problems with their owners as well. So, like, the grass isn't always greener when the, when the Glazers go. Is that true? Mate, as much as I want rid of the Glazers... And I have no doubt that a significant portion of United fans would be delighted if they were United were bought by Saudis where they could buy any striker in the world or any of this. Then to me, and it's up to everyone else to decide what, what their uh, threshold is, but for me, that would be a bridge too far. 
right? And I completely accept the whataboutery argument with the US, we're owned by American owners, but they're owners that happen to be American, they don't shape American foreign policy, that's something totally different, right? These are people that shape the foreign policy and the policies, the social policies of their countries that are passing deliberately prejudicial laws against particular groups that are just utterly despicable and indefensible. And, and I'm sorry, uh, that should not be defended in any, in any capacity. You have to have the ability, the maturity to criticise own, the owners of your football club. Something I often see missing from Newcastle fans, something I often see missing from City fans, something I, also, I often see missing from fans that are owned by despots. I'm not criticising your club. I'm not criticising you. I'm not criticising your players. I'm criticising people that are using your football club. Right? And you should be angry about that. Because your football club doesn't exist anymore. Your football club exists solely as a, a, as a vehicle for sports washing, and it will always do what's in the best interests of the people that own it, not you. And if those interests align, great, but that won't always be the case. Secondly, it also creates precedent. And this is what I warned about people celebrating about the Glazer takeover. That precedent will visit your football club soon too. The Premier League's about to be owned. Uh, Bournemouth are about to be bought by another American. Bad owners are bad owners regardless of where they're from, right? It doesn't matter whether they're American, doesn't matter where they're from. The bad owners, doesn't matter. So that would mean half the Premier League clubs are not owned by people from the UK. I don't think it's necessary for football clubs to be owned by people from the UK, but there has to be some alignment with sport and culture. And when you've got zero alignment from sport and culture um, with the culture that you are from, then you get things like the Super League. Then you get things like Todd Bowley coming out and saying we should have an all-star game. You get this nonsense, right? Because they're completely ignorant of sport and culture in the UK that, is, that defends these things on a theme. So to me, I think this is where the governing body's regulations badly let down football fans and football clubs and the clubs that they're duty-bound to protect, in my opinion. Where... We're at a. Um, we're getting so many questions on Twitter about a potential takeover, and like, where mm. do you think we are with that? Is there right. is there is it fair for me to say that by this time next year, there's a very strong chance we'll have new owners and majority owners at that? So here's the thing, right? Um, so obviously, this has been a heavily evolving story. I haven't done much on it the last few weeks because I've been sick, but. Um, there was a story came out about a week ago uh, saying the Saudis were offered 30% of United for 700 million. United, uh, from what I was reliably informed, had looked at doing this also in 2017. There's a reason why the Glazers are offering part of this football club. That reason it still exists, and that reason, in fact, if anything, is, is getting worse by the day. Uh, for the Glazers to continue to fund Manchester United, they need to get capital. That has to come either in the form of investment or the form of borrowing. Um, the cost of borrowing has significantly increased. So their choices are, do we sell part of the equity in this football club to someone like the Saudis to get 700 million in? But even if you do, you have to reinvest that 700 million in a stadium, in players, in infrastructure. So you're diluting your ownership and your equity to reinvest that money back in the football club. The Glazers don't reinvest in Manchester United. The Glazers, they, they, how can I describe what they're doing to United? It's like the farmer fattening the cow before slaughter. 
right? The cow thinks that the farmer is his friend because he's given him all this food, right? Well, that's what the glazers are doing right now with how United spent this summer, right? So they're not your friends. They're not doing you a favor by, by letting United spend, okay? This is fattening the cow for slaughter. They want to sell this football club. Um, they have not once come out since the summer and denied that's the case, which would have taken them two seconds. They did, however, deny that they were going to sell off future revenues, um, and they did that very quickly. So, and they're well aware, obviously, of the discussion, and there's a legal obligation to come out and say you're not for sale. So they have one, as far as I've been informed, and I trust not just the quality of the information that I'm given, the reputation of the individuals, the source of where it's coming from, and the fact that this is not my typical um, inside sources at United where people hand me information. This is from people in the financial market that have no incentive to bullshit me um, and who demand anonymity, so there's nothing in it for them. Um, that What I have seen is that the Glazers are very much in, in, in the business of soliciting offers for the club. They have to get money in. The football club in its current guise is completely unsustainable. They don't have the money to fund this football club the way it needs to be funded beyond this summer. Uh, Richard Arnold's already said that. Um, the top four is as uncertain as it was at the start of the season. The commercial revenue is not growing. Ronaldo had no impact on their commercial revenue. So they're out of gimmicks. So if... If if players are no longer moving the needle, if they're not making enough money anymore in the day-to-day run of the business to fund the football club, then there's inevitable outcomes there. So the Glazer ownership and its current guys cannot continue. They are at end game. They cannot continue to borrow. They cannot continue to take money out. They cannot continue to square the circle of a football club that loses money, but we're taking massive dividends. No one is investing in a business that does that. Nobody. So I don't think there's any appetite for a partial sale. I can only see one outcome, and that is United being sold. And I think the screws are tightening on the financial market. You see what's happening to the British pound currency, which means United's valuation is, if someone wants to, if it's if, if an American wants to buy Manchester United, this is the time to do it because. You've never had a better conversion rate, currency rate. But what what type of offer does it take in order to get Manchester United? I'm talking about in terms of how much is it going to cost the prospective owner to, to pay for Manchester United at this point. So what I was told was 3.75 billion plus debt, which would have taken it to about four and a half billion, right? So um, that's a lot of money, and it's more than what United are worth. But I still think United would get that money. I'd love to see a Jim Ratcliffe, right, and. United fans are going to have to keep up the pressure to get the Glazers out. Because if they sense weakness, if they sense that um, fatigue and, and, and with protest fatigue or anything like that, they'll exploit that. But as you can see commercially, they cannot afford any more hits. And a football fan base, you're selling fan equity to sponsors, a football fan base that's angry at your owners, that you can't leverage sponsors to get them to buy their product, that's very, very difficult to go in and go out and sell yourself to sponsors. And the problem for United now is that they can't bullshit anymore. Come, there is no more where, you know, this just happened. That, you know, everyone knows that the reason why United are in the mess they're in is down to rank incompetence. 
it's not you, the Glazers have no more plausible deniability to blame this or blame that or blame this or blame this guy or this guy. Or this. No, it's you. So they are toxic to the brand, they're toxic to the image, and they're toxic to any potential investment in Manchester United because no one wants to invest while the biggest problem still remains at the football club. Is it is it key that whatever prospective owner comes in to this club strengthens the commercial entity by also investing in the stadium and the infrastructure? Because to me, that's something that needs to be sorted right away whenever a new owner comes in. We have to get Old Trafford to a point. Like you look at all the big stadiums around the world and then you compare Old Trafford to it. Old Trafford's always going to be unbelievable, right? It's, it's an unbelievable stadium, but it needs updated. It needs something. And is that, is that going to mm. be number one on the priority list for a new prospective owner? Hundred any anyone who buys Manchester United, this has to be a priority because look, you you can buy a team or you can buy a club, and if you buy a team and you sexy it up with a couple of star signings, but you make no investment in the infrastructure, you're not there for the long term. You're there for a quick flip. If you do the non-sexy stuff that doesn't necessarily add tremendous value to the brand, like invest in the infrastructure. Like invest in the stadium and the training ground, all that. You see, what United are selling isn't the stadium, it's not the training ground. If United were training at the cliff and the stadium was like the old Old Trafford, it really wouldn't shave that much off their value. You're buying United's name, you're buying their global reach, you're buying all the things that aren't in, 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 in an infrastructure portfolio. So that's the easy stuff. Anyone with serious money can go in and invest a billion and a half and, and build United's infrastructure and modernise it. That, that's fine. Right? You can do that. The reason why the Glazers haven't done it is for the reason I just said to you. They don't see a return on their investment. They go in and put a billion and a half. They're not getting that back in the, in, in the sale price of the football club. Because whoever buys United's going to be extremely wealthy anyway. And um, they are someone that are not going to be put off because you needed need stadium or, or infrastructure investment because that's not where the value is. The value is in the brand. So, Sorry, um, with a prospective I, owner, though, that comes in, right, to the club mm -hmm. and says, look, we're going to throw this money at the stadium, mm -hmm. is it important that we don't sell the naming rights to the stadium as part of that deal? Because for me, Old Trafford is Old Trafford. It can't be changed. And I know it's mm -hmm. something that was spoke about before and there was a lot of uproar about it, but I don't. As you've said about how the culture of some of these owners and they don't understand the sporting culture is it important that we keep that as is and it, it, it's not open for debate at some point that maybe the naming rights are sold or do you think it's inevitable that we get so that remember stage? what I, remember what i said about precedent um now there's a precedent in football of big clubs selling the naming rights to their stadiums you know bam unique juventus all this right so guaranteed old trafford will get sold and there'll be a kick up from some of the older fans generational fans most of the young fans won't care you know they don't care if it's called you know the the bank of england arena or something they don't care right now to purists traditionalists i care i want it to stay old trafford i don't want it to call i i i don't want to call it captain bird's arena or some shit like that right and then there's also the question is uh, from a a you know, I don't know what the legal aspect of this because Old Trafford is a listed building, and the Glazers fought this in court, uh, because they, of course, were looking at 
leveraging that stadium as part whenever they were they were refinancing obviously the stadium's part of the equity but it got a bit tricky because um manchester city council listed it as a listed building which greatly prohibited their ability to what they could do with it so um i don't know if there's a legal requirement to keep it old trafford because of its history i don't know personally i i would not want to see that name sold but i completely accept that a lot of the things that I considered, you know, uh, anathema, things that I considered to be fundamental to the identity of English football have long since gone. Does there need to be some sort of, I don't know, Manchester United throughout the board going forward, as in whenever we get to the stage of a takeover, does there need to be a director of football in place that understands the club, that understands what's went on? In this football club years previous because it seemed to me and it, it, it seems to everyone that there was some sort of circus under the glazers and it got to a point where it was wasn't sustainable for that ownership to continue and um, you've said it the incompetence has started from the top and worked its way down so it's important that that's nipped in the bud at the very beginning of this takeover um i'm not someone that's completely sold on the whole idea someone needs to get united and i don't i don't even like that I mean, if you knew, you know, the two most successful managers in the history, Sir Matt Busby and Ferguson, neither of them got United. I mean, Sir Matt Busby played for Liverpool and City. Right? It wasn't exactly someone that was United DNA, right? But he was highly competent. He became United DNA. He became someone that's synonymous with a football club. His history prior to being hired by United is pretty much forgotten by most people. Sir Alex Ferguson never set foot inside Manchester United before he took over and became the most successful manager in history. Almost any time you make a great discovery or something new, you have to break with traditional thinking. You have to think in unique, um, counterintuitive ways. Any scientific discovery, anything, it always is about breaking with tradition. And that's what they did with Matt Busby and that's what they did with Ferguson. Someone that brought in completely different standards to the football club. I mean, Ferguson had to come in and get rid of Norman Whitehead, Paul McGrath, all, lots of players that were very popular but um, and, and form part of United's identity to create a new one. So I don't think it's imperative that whoever comes in and runs a football club has to have that background. Um, but I think where United have to overcome their own equation is Ten Hag is in the situation where he's finding out about what needs to to be corrected. United now have to have the commitment to fulfill those corrections and not fulfill some of them and kind of, uh, we're good enough. I don't want to overcome, I don't, I, I don't want to, again, consistency, not just on the playing pitch, but off the pitch to, to over, because these are hard, these are complex issues. They require patience, they require expertise that they don't have, they require them doing things they don't want to do, and they require financing. The question really is, are they going to let Ten Hag do the second part of his job and implement the changes that need to be done? That's always we need to have the problem. I think that going forward, we have to be prepared for some big changes to this club that some people might not like. Like you, You've referenced there that you might not like the owners that come in, but you know, at the end of the day, this is something that we're going to have to deal with going forward because not every owner is going to be Jim Ratcliffe. And even saying that, is Jim Ratcliffe going to be what we think he's going to be? Because we don't know that either. There's a possibility he comes in and it's a shit show again. 
you just don't know these things. So I think you have to have your eyes open in these situations about owners and who's going to take over the club because no one really knows how it's going to end up until you're two or three years into the tenure, really. Well, there's possibility and probability. And I think for United fans, the probability that Jim Ratcliffe would be a much more benevolent owner um, and, and, and a much better owner than the Glazers and much more oh, aligned I think with United fans would be certainly. far greater. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I don't expect much, right? I've, I've given up on a lot. I accept the fact that business is a massive part of football. I accept the fact that United are going to prostitute themselves out to every potential sponsor, um, regardless of... Uh, you know, and I'm not suggesting for one minute the Glazers would record it taking money off the Saudis because of ethical issues. They wouldn't, and they haven't, and they've taken money off them in the past. So um, I've long since conceded a lot of the dark arts that now infest football, but I do think that there is still, you can still be an extremely responsible owner of a football club and comply with decency and comply with morality and comply with certain values that your football club's supposed to adhere to. You can still make money that way. You can still be a decent human being. And and, and I don't think it's inevitable that you get a scumbag. Um, no, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I don't think that, I think definitely 100% Jim Ratcliffe is going to be 10 times better than what the Glazers have been. But what I'm saying is that I'm just not too sure if any of these perspective owners are going to end up turning around the club like we all think that they might. And there's always the possibility it doesn't go that way. Well, um, nobody's we'll banging for it to remain as it is, but I, there's no guarantee it has the outcome that we want. But I was pretty sure yeah. if you're going to buy Manchester United, you're going to buy it with the intent of restoring it to former glories. Otherwise, what, what, why bother? You know, well, we'll get on to the, the Twitter questions. There's loads here. Yes, go ahead, man. Start reading them. A lot of them are around uh, the takeover, so I'll not touch on them. But Jordan Devlin said, do you, do you think the issue with Ronaldo is probably more so with his head rather than ability? The fact he knows he isn't mm. the player or goal scorer he once was. So we've sort of touched on this a little bit before, where I've seen the problem is in your head, you're still the same, exactly the same as you were pre-decline. So that will obviously affect his confidence whenever you're hitting the post from eight yards out with no keeper in the net. You know, so he's a human being. He's not immune to having confidence dips, even though he's Cristiano Ronaldo. And this is the first time in his career he's really experienced anything like this on a, over an extended period of time, with the exception of when he was really young. <clears throat> so um, this is new territory in some sense for Ronaldo. He's one of the most mentally strong athletes you can ever hope to come across. Uh, I mean, you can't be what he is without being that. But... I'm sure for him, given the standards that he set in the past, it's extremely frustrating that he can't execute the way he once did. Matt says, will Ronaldo's wages off the books next summer simply be absorbed by the failure to qualify for the Champions League? Mm, that, if Ronaldo's wages will be a fraction of what it cautioned not to qualify for the Champions League, not just with regards to... Um, you know the data steal, the of course the, the the commercial revenue from other sponsors, commercial revenue from Champions League, from not finishing, you know the commercial revenue for the Premier League from missing out and forth. So, um, and given United's current financial plate, that is absolutely unthinkable. If United are sitting in January, you know significantly off the pace of four, I ex- top four, I would expect that will accelerate the selling uh, the sale of the football club. 
There's another question here. Do you think Ronaldo's presence on the pitch has an adverse effect on Bruno's performances? I don't. I mean, I see people say this all the time, that Ronaldo being on the pitch affects how Bruno performs. But we've seen Ronaldo and Bruno perform well together. We've seen them perform well together at an international level. So what's to say that it's having an adverse effect on him? I don't think it's anything to do with Bruno and Ronaldo's play, playing together. Like It just doesn't make sense, this question to me. I wouldn't say. I, I think I get what, someone, what, what someone's asking. Because here's the thing. If you're a creative midfielder, you're defined really by two things. Um, you, the goals you score and the goals you create. And when you can't create because you've got a static forward or a forward that's not taking chances, when you miss an assist for every chance he misses, right? That greatly impacts how people view you. You know, I mean, an assist for a playmaker is like a clean sheet for a goalkeeper. These matter to players. You know, that's a massive metric for determining whether you're being successful at a football club or not. So when you've got a forward that doesn't give you the movement you need, you you know, De Bruyne's assist would drop significantly if he'd Ronaldo in front of him. For I mean, he's, De Bruyne's assist have massively increased with having Holland in front of him, not Raheem Sterling. So, but at the same time, how much of Ronaldo and Bruno played together this season? And have you seen that same, what you're saying, having the, the adverse effect? Has it not been the same whenever it's Rashford? Has it not been the same whenever it's it's Martial? So, you, like I, last I season, but Martial and Rashford have been much better this season. Yeah, no, they have been obviously, of course, yeah. they have been. But what I'm saying is, is that the effect that it's had on Bruno is it really an effect on him? I, don't I think, think it so. would affect him. Yeah, I think it would. Have, I think if you're, it's it's kind of like does Harry Maguire affect David David De Gea? Of course, you know. Um, if if Harry Maguire the the line in front of. Um, David De Gea doesn't do their job it will mean De Gea will concede more goals it will affect his confidence it will affect his game it will mean he'll have to do different things to compensate for that so I could definitely see why uh, a misfiring forward affects a creative midfielder and how that affects them confidence wise it affects how they play you know with when you play football and you're playing with exceptional players that you trust explicitly You'll give them the ball in almost any scenario because you trust them. But when you're playing with someone that can no longer do that or you don't trust them in the same way, you start second-guessing your passes. You start holding on to a ball longer. You start switching play when you normally wouldn't. You start making different changes, different different choices, because you don't have trust in that particular player. Now, I accept that United didn't do that on Thursday against Nicosia because they were doing everything, but this was Nicosia. You know, what top game would you want Ronaldo to start ahead of United's current choices I, I, I don't I can't think of anyone I can't either we'll go with one last question here it's uh, from Lawrence is Varane unlucky or is he a chocolate fire or mm. are he injuries I actually think he is unlucky I know people will probably say no he's, he's chocolate because he's injured so much but really at Real Madrid at the beginning he wasn't injured a lot towards the end of his career at Real Madrid yes he did pick up niggling injuries here and there but I just feel like he's been unlucky at us at the moment. I think that will change over time. It has to. And if it doesn't, then it just hasn't worked out for him at Manchester United. But we need him to stay fit in order to be defensively solid like we were whenever it was him and Martinez in there. I don't feel as confident, and I'm sure no one else feels as confident whenever you see Martinez and Lindelof or Martinez and Maguire. And I think going forward, we need Varane to stay fit in order to play our best football. I definitely think he's unlucky in the sense that he has certain physiology and biology that makes him more susceptible to certain types of injuries and stress injuries that other players with different genetics wouldn't. 
Um, I think he also plays in a position that's prone to injury. I mean, City started what with the Aki and Akanji at the weekend because their centre-backs were injured. Um, you know, I, I think he missed half of the Premier League games last season. and missed 19, I think. Um, that's too much. You need a centre-back defensive parent, and there is no question the best parent at Manchester United is Martinez and uh, Rafael Varane. So I think he is a bit unlucky. I don't think the Premier League is the best league in the world to be in if you've got some injury worries um, because of its intensity. Uh, I remember his first game against Wolves. United were poor at game. But they won 1-0. And the intensity with the Damatriori, and um, I don't think him and his play that day, but um, Wolves were all over United. The speed was unbelievable. Neto and I think Jota played then, I'm not sure. No, Jota was gone. Um, but uh, I remember after he came and blown his cheeks out and he talked about how quick and intense the Premier League is versus other leagues. So it's very akin. It, 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 it's certainly for players who are speedy, who are quick. Um, you know, it's, it's suited to them. The problem is players like that pull hamstrings a lot and they have a lot of non-contact injuries. Uh, it's just a consequence of some of the attributes. There's pros and cons to everything. So to me, I think uh, he is unlucky to have the genetics that he does where he is prone to certain injuries. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but hopefully he can get himself fit sooner rather than later because we definitely need it back. Yeah, I mean, he's... Uh, this is what I was saying earlier about Maguire affecting the hair. I mean, when you have someone in front of you that you trust implicitly, then your mental focus is different. You know, you're not on edge completely. And the contrast between United with Lindelof and Maguire versus Martinez and, and, and Varane is, is it's unrecognisable. So massively important player for Manchester United. And I think, um, Obviously, Maguire's been injured. Not having, I think he's going to be back this weekend, though. I was reading that Ten Hag said he may well be fit this weekend. So the initial reports that Laurie Whitwell was putting out there of four to five months, thankfully, don't look like that's going to transpire. So uh, four to five months losing Varane would be an absolute nightmare. Catastrophic. Would be. Um, big game this weekend against an Everton team that's finding some form. I almost feel like this game this weekend would be more of a test United than last weekend's. Because I feel that um, United aren't on, a city, on City's level yet. But Everton will test United in different ways. And this is going to be a test of them mentally as much as anything else. And um, it's a game, if United want to finish top four, it's a game I have to win. Do you think Casemiro starts ahead of Scott McTominay? Don't know. But I would, I would say that I saw some articles written after um, the City game saying that Casemiro should have started. Did they, did they not watch football? I, I mean, there's absolutely no reason to have started Casemiro against Manchester City. Name. Yeah, McTominay, it's blatantly obvious why McTominay's in the team. He adds a physicality that no one else gives. He gives him height at set pieces on defensive set pieces, which is very important. So I see when you're clinging on to game 2-1 and you're getting long balls in the box, you'll need that physicality that Casemiro doesn't give you. Right? Um, so to me, I think it's... You know, what, if Ten Hag doesn't pick his team on form, what is he supposed to pick it on? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think, I think there's so many people that are anti-Scott McTominay. It's the same way about Fred. I genuinely believe 
Fred plays well in a team alongside Casemiro. He's do, he's done it for Brazil. I think Fred is is a good player. I know a lot of people get down my throat about this in this podcast because I'm saying it time and time again. But Fred is a good player. Don't care what anyone says. I know maybe your opinion differs to me on that as well. But Fred is a good player. Just like Scott McTominay is a good player. And over the last couple of weeks, the only reason that Casemiro should have started ahead of Scott McTominay is the fact that he played for Real Madrid and he's Brazilian. That's it. Wow. There's no other, no, no other reason for him to play ahead of Scott McTominay in the last few weeks. What I would say with Casemiro is when you play McTominay, you're playing for things that Casemiro can never do. Casemiro is never going to give you height on set pieces. Right, he's such a different player to Scott McTominay. Um, obviously, he's a defensive midfielder. Does some things better than McTominay. Some things not the same. Um, I'm trying to understand what United want to do there, because to swap McTominay out for Casemiro, I cannot see United doing that in games where the game is really tight for the reasons that I just said. Unless you bring is, off is there a way we can bring them into the same team? Well, that's what I was going to say, unless you bring off an Eriksen uh, or, or a Bruno Fernandes, where you play both of them as defensive midfielder, which, of course, was a massive criticism of Solskjaer, was a massive criticism of uh, Ranić playing two defensive midfielders and Fred McTominay. Do you go back to that? Because you clearly lose something going forward. Um, and when you're holding on to games, being able to get the ball upfield into areas where you can hold the ball, waste time and all that is really, really important. Um, so I just, I, I, I wonder how you go from Casemiro to, to McTominay and say Casemiro's attributes are better suited in this game than McTominay's. Obviously, Ten Hag knows that answer better than me, but, um, and and there's going to be people listening to this, they're going to be incredulous at the idea that um, I'm not saying Casemiro's 30,000 times the player Scott McTominay is. I'm just saying that Scott McTominay has certain physical attributes that are unique to him in the United team that is also very important with how United play. And so um, they have to find another way of defending uh, without hate, because obviously with Lissandra Martinez's hate... By the way, I was just on that. reading an article the other day. United are the second... United have, uh, in terms of hate, have the second tallest team in the Premier League. And the average height of a striker is 5 foot 10. So see this myth about Lissandra Martinez going to be constantly dominated in the air? It's total nonsense. Anyway, um, yeah, that's my thoughts on it, mate. Just lastly, before you go on there, there's an opposing view on the Casemiro thing, and in terms of Casemiro, is it it fair to say that Casemiro needs a run of games? Because he hasn't got that yet. He's been a bit part player here and there. He's been brought on. He hasn't really had the consistency of playing. Oh, Danny needs games. To see that. And is that something that maybe then we'll see him be 30,000 times the player of Scott McTominay? Because it's unfair of us to sit here right now and say that Scott McTominay's a better player than Casemiro, which I think we can't say anyway. He's a different player than Casemiro. He's, he's not a better player, he's a different player. And his attributes are very important ones. Um, you know, here's the thing with, with, with Casemiro. The thing that I don't and I will never understand United played City last weekend. A player scored a hat-trick that United refused to sign because of a release clause. In other words, resale value. So how do you then justify spending, I don't know, $65 million on a player with no resale value of Casemiro? It just, to me, 
that uh, that Casemiro signing was a result of what happened at Brentford and the protests that were happening and it was a bit of a panic signing. I think he could be an exceptional player and I love that he's at United. I'm just saying everything about that deal was a complete contradiction to how United have been doing business for a long, long time. And fundamental principles with which they did business were compromised for that deal to happen. And so I just wonder how much thought really went into it. I just wonder... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I, I, I'm love that he said, well, and, and I, there's certain I questions about it that I, that I just will never understand. But he strengthens the side, and that's the most. Yeah, I would say he does. Yeah, yeah, but uh, there's lots of players would have strengthened the side. Um, they're playing his position, lots of them. So I think um, that's not the best scale of whether it was a good signing or not. Um, given how poor United are in that situation, and they, I would completely agree that where Castamira was much better than Scott McTominay, as he provides much more defensive discipline in midfield, where Scott McTominay drifts quite a lot, um, and you get the back four, back four is exposed a lot because you'll find him being dragged. All, I mean, take a look at Man City, dragged all over the place, him and Eriksson, right? Um, and so that leaves the back four completely exposed. I think Casemiro is much more intelligent than Scott McTominay in that sense. Uh, prediction for the Everton game, mate? I think United 3-1. I think we're just too strong for Everton. I think defensively, Everton are vulnerable. We need, need some sort of correlation between our front three against Everton. I don't think Ronaldo can start, in my opinion. don't think it's the game where Ronaldo no. can start. I think would definitely need some sort of discipline defensively as well and a strong performance like we, we can't have these performances where we go two down again and we're fighting against it even one down against everton and goodison you're in trouble then we need yeah. to start very very fast and strong and, and hopefully we, we do it it's it's going to be tough but i i think we can definitely get the win on something like that. i think you know we'll win too um and I, like i said you know it will earn more of my trust if they win this weekend than what they lost losing the setting and that's yeah the way i see it but all right folks thanks to all of you Th apologies for not being able to record for a few weeks i've been really sick i'm doing all right now thankfully uh i hope all of you are doing well whatever you're doing this friday night um hope your mental and physical health is good thanks to all of you for downloading the show as always for getting in touch and uh we'll be back now on a, a weekly basis so Take it easy. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back after Everton. Take it easy. See you, man. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Bye.